Open your Bibles this morning, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 11. And we'll start in verse 14 in just a minute. We'll actually go through the end of chapter 12 this morning. So we're going to cover a lot of verses, but it all, it all fits in the same context. So 1 Samuel chapter 11, starting with verse 14 here in, here in just a moment. I love the Summer Olympics. Um, I almost wish they were every year, but then I guess it wouldn't be as special if they weren't once every four years. And I've used this illustration three or four years ago, so some of you may remember this story. But in the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona, Spain, there was something very memorable that happened even for the Olympics. A lot of things memorable happened in the Olympics, but this kind of is one of those very special things. There was a runner from Great Britain named Derek Redmond, and he had a realistic shot of winning a medal in the men's 400-meter race, and it was in the, the semifinal heat when the starting gun sounded and, and Derek started off really well. An announcer even made a point about how, how well Derek started the race. And then all of a sudden, Derek Redmond just fell to the ground. And he told reporters afterwards that he heard something snap and actually for a split second thought a sniper had shot him. But what happened was he had blown out his hamstring. And what happened next after Derek fell was one of the most memorable moments in Olympic history. Derek got up and on the one good leg he had, he started hopping towards the finish line. His dad came out of the stands and put his arm around Derek and helped support him and they crossed the finish line together. See, Derek didn't let his failure stop him from finishing. Nor did that failure mean that his dad was no longer there to support him. Over the past few chapters in 1 Samuel, we've seen Israel's failure in asking for an earthly king. It was great wickedness. But in chapter 12, even though Samuel will remind them of how wicked it was, he's also going to encourage them not to allow their failure to keep them from serving God going forward. And he's going to remind them that God has not forsaken them. If they will turn to God and serve Him, He will be right there for them always. So last week in most of chapter 11, we saw Saul's first test in battle with the Ammonites, and he passed with flying colors. They were victorious, um, but even more so than his victory in the battle was how he handled it after the victory. When those came up to Saul and Samuel and said, weren't there a group that didn't want Saul as king? Where are those men at? Let's kill them. And Saul said, nobody's going to die today because the Lord wrought salvation in Israel. And so Saul, his first victory, he, he wins with grace. And he wins giving God all the credit. God gets all the glory and all the praise. And that, that victory led Samuel and the rest of the Israelites to meet together in Gilgal and to confirm Saul as their new king once again with a worshipful celebration. So look at verse uh, 14 and 15 of chapter 11. Then said Samuel to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. If you remember in chapter 10 when Saul's selection as king was made public, Remember when they, they narrowed everybody down from tribe to family and that finally landed on Saul, that he was the one God chose to be uh, that first king of Israel. 
In chapter 10, really the Lord wasn't recognized or acknowledged in that ceremony whatsoever. He was obviously involved. He was the one that gave them Saul. Uh, He told them where Saul was hiding behind the suitcases when they couldn't find him. But the people never prayed. We're not told during that time that they ever prayed to God. We're not told of any, we don't see the word joy or rejoicing in chapter 10. We don't see any sacrifices being offered. There's no worship uh, when Saul is, is proclaimed king. Even in verse 24 of chapter 10, when the people shouted, God save the king, the word God is not in the original Hebrew. Better translation is long live the king. It's not that they're against the king, but they don't even ask God's blessing on their new king. But now at the end of chapter 11, this, maybe we'd call it a coronation. This is a little different, isn't it, than chapter 10? Finally, there is some, there's some celebration. There's some worship. It says that Saul was made king before the Lord here. The Lord is a part of this ceremony now. They, they worship God with sacrifices. And it was a joyful time. It says, Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. I don't know about you, but I love that it singles out Saul here. Because it's really the first positive emotion we've seen from Saul since Samuel anointed him. We weren't told any any happiness, any joy in his life, anything like that. This was the guy that once hid behind the bags because he was scared to do what God had already called him to do. But now there's some joy. They're rejoicing. And everybody else as well, all of Israel. And just like their victory that they, that they won in chapter 11, it came from the Lord. True joy comes from the Lord. You can experience happiness in your life if circumstances are good enough. But true joy is something from God that is not dependent upon your circumstances. You can have the worst day of your life and still have joy in your heart because you're a child of God through your faith in Jesus Christ. Joy and happiness are completely different things. And here, the children of Israel and their king, they're joyful at the victory the Lord's given them, at the, at the, at the success of their new king. And it was a day of renewal. Samuel said, let's go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. I, I love that about Samuel. He's a great leader And so he's going to use Saul's first victory as an opportunity to kind of bring the people back in. Let's renew the kingdom here. Let's revive here. Let's let's kind of reestablish the covenant that we've made with God. Let's remember that and and reset ourselves going forward. It might be something that we would expect if they'd have lost the battle. Sometimes if you have a you know, if you have a defeat, that's when you do the soul searching. That's when you, okay, I need to really reassess here. What am I doing? Am I serving God right? Am I? And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's good. But we shouldn't turn to God only after defeats. We should turn to God after victories, after successes, because every good thing in our life, every success we talked about last week, it's from Him anyway. So every situation in our life ought to turn us to God. Good, bad, medium. Every situation ought to turn us to God. And so that's what the Israelites did here under the the leadership of Samuel. And as the people are gathered here in Gilgal, Samuel's going to address them. You give a a preacher an opportunity to preach, he's going to say yes. right? So Samuel's got an audience here in Gilgal, and he's going to to speak to the people. And this is going to be a huge turning point in Israel's history. 
Samuel's old. He's the last of the judges. And now he has anointed a king, a king that God has chosen, a king that the people wanted, even though their desire was wicked. And he's victorious and the people love him. And so on the one hand, Samuel's role is coming to an end, but Saul's just beginning. And so pretty much all of chapter 12 that we'll look at today is Samuel's speech to the people. And he began in the first five verses by reviewing his own leadership. Look at chapter 12, verse 1 through 5. Samuel said unto all Israel, Behold, I have hearkened unto your voice and all that you said unto me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walketh before you, and I am old and gray-headed. And behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my childhood unto this day. Behold, here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed, whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed, or of whose hand have I received any bribe to blind mine eyes therewith, and I will restore it you. They said, Thou hast not defrauded us, nor oppressed us, neither hast thou taken aught of any man's hand. And he said unto them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that ye have not found aught in my hand. And they answered, He is witness. Samuel had quite literally been a lifelong servant of God. Sometimes I think we get to this part of chat, uh, uh, in Samuel and we forget you know, about Samuel's beginnings, that his mom Hannah prayed for him. And promised God that if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And that's exactly what happened. It's this same Samuel who has served God from the time he was a child when his mother Hannah took him there to Shiloh and dropped him off. Came back every year. He served God and he served Israel for his whole life. And even in chapter three, uh, verse 3, his words, Behold, here I am. Doesn't that kind of remind you back to when God called him? And Samuel, Samuel, and he'd run to Eli, here I am. Behold, here I am. And the Israelites affirm in verse 4 that Samuel has definitely been a righteous leader. He didn't take bribes. He wasn't for sale. He didn't defraud anyone. He didn't oppress anyone. He didn't use his position as a prophet and as a judge. And all the influence that could come with that, he didn't use that for his own benefit and to advance his own position like sadly so many leaders do. Still happens in our world today. But as Samuel's nearing the end of his service, both he and the people of Israel look back on all his years of leadership as years marked with integrity. One man says, and it's this very simple quote, but I like what he says, It's a wonderful thing to get to the closing years of life and be able to review your life and not be afraid or ashamed. I think that's how Samuel is coming to, to the end of his life. He's lived and served in such a way that he's not afraid for people to look back and scrutinize what he's done. He's not afraid to review what he has done. He's not ashamed at how he lived or how he led the people of God. But I think one thing we need to point out here is that in his review of his ministry, he makes no mention of his accomplishments or his achievements or anything like that. He doesn't remind them of what he did. Samuel reminds them of who he is. Samuel's legacy as a leader was about righteousness. Not about how many things he made happen or stop happening. And, and those things come with righteous leading. That's not saying that doing things is bad. Don't, don't misunderstand that. 
but it was about who he was more than what he did. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 that a good name is better than precious ointment. Samuel had a good name. He had a good reputation. And I want you to think in, in your life, in my life, how different would our lives be if we were less concerned about what we did and more concerned about who we are? If we would be like Samuel and, and focus living our lives with integrity, with honesty, with character, with righteousness, and leave the rest up to God, I, I promise you He'll take care of what you do if you're worried about who you are and living right for Him. That's the way Samuel had lived. And he asks Israel, is that indeed the way I've led? And they said, you bet it is. And he said, the Lord and His anointed are your witness today that you've said that. So it's been established that Samuel is credible, he's honest. And so in verses 6 through the rest of the chapter, the people better listen up when he starts to tell his, his two thoughts on the matter, when he gives his, his two cents on the matter, I should say. You better listen up because he's a man of integrity. He's going to speak the truth. And so he begins to offer this review of Israel's history. He's reviewed his ministry, now he's going to review their history. Look at verse 6 through 11. Samuel said unto the people, It is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron, and that brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and to your fathers. When Jacob was come into Egypt, and your fathers cried unto the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, which brought forth your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the host of Hatsor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried unto the Lord and have said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served Balaam and Ashtaroth, two gods and goddesses of the Canaanites there. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies and we will serve thee. And the Lord sent Jerubbaal or Gideon and Badon, which is probably Barak, and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you dwelled safe. Samuel began as the prophets often did when they're reminding Israel their history. They go all the way back to when they were slaves in Egypt. It's kind of always the starting point there. They, they always bring the people back to, you were once a slave, but God brought you out of that. In that situation, that trial that the Israelites were in when they were oppressed and, and slaves to the Egyptians, they didn't rise up and rebel on their own strength. They didn't concoct some plan in their wisdom of how to trick Pharaoh into letting them go or anything like that whatsoever. They absolutely did not leave Egypt because of their own strength, but because of God's. The word in verse 6, they, that the Lord advanced Moses and Aaron. Advanced is a very common word in the Old Testament. It's used over 2,600 times. It normally just means to do or to make. God made Moses and Aaron. Both in the sense that He created them, He's the creator of all things, but in, in the sense that He made them to be leaders among the people. God's the one that set these men up in their leadership positions and sent them. That's what verse 8 says. He sent them. Going back to Egypt wasn't Moses' idea, was it? He's out in the wilderness shepherding in Midian. 
He has no thoughts of returning to Egypt. He tries to come up with every excuse not to go back. And it wasn't that the people were calling for Moses. They were crying out to God, but they weren't asking for Moses specifically. God sent Moses back after 40 years of shepherding in Midian. And the Israelites were delivered from slavery because of the power of God. It was all God's doing. But we even know after they finally reached the promised land, their troubles didn't stop, did it? Because of their failure to obey, their failure to continue to serve God, even at times where they, it wasn't just disobeying God's law, but they went and served other gods. They worshipped false gods, and so they faced other enemies and other trials. They were oppressed by other enemies, and that shouldn't have surprised them. Because God warned them in the law of Moses that if you don't serve me, if you turn your back on me, I will bring discipline in the form of oppression from your enemies. Well, guess what? God kept His word. God did exactly what He told them He would do. If you turn your back on me, I will discipline you. That's what a loving parent does, right? Loving fathers and loving mothers discipline their children when they need it. God's the most loving parent we could ever ask for. Samuel specifically mentions that they were oppressed by the Canaanites of Hatsor, by the Philistines, and by the Moabites. There were a lot of other enemies. But Samuel uses these three probably as a summary because these three uh, enemies kind of encompass or cover just about every geographical region that Israel could be attacked from. When we were in Israel in 2011, um, our tour guide told us that Israel's favorite neighbor is the neighbor to her west. Think about that for a minute. What's the neighbor to Israel's west? The Mediterranean Sea. He said Israel has never been attacked by the Mediterranean Sea, but they've been attacked from just about everywhere else. And that's kind of what Samuel's bringing up here. You've been attacked from the north, the, the, the south, the east, nothing from the west because there's a sea there. But in spite of your sin, in spite of your oppression, God would still deliver you every time you called out. He delivered you every time. Notice in verse 11, he, he reminded them of some of the other judges along with himself that God had sent. And he even says at the end of verse 11 that he delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, wherever they came from. And you dwelled safe. God proved himself to be faithful and powerful every single time. So why would they beg for a king to fight their battles for them? It's so sad and shameful and rebellious. When we get to verse 12 and 13, you almost want to say but instead of and here. But when you saw that Nahash, the king of, children, the, king of the children of Ammon, came against you, you said unto me, Nay, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore behold the king whom you have chosen, and whom ye have desired, and behold, the Lord hath set a king over you. How sad that after God's perfect record of deliverance, they would still ask for an earthly king. And God gave them exactly what they asked for. He gave them a king like the other nations. But what Samuel's going to say in verse 14 and 15... And we're going to skip to verse 24 and 25 here too. 
is that their wickedness, their rebellion against God and asking for a king, it didn't mean that they could no longer serve. It didn't mean that God was finished with them. Look at verse 14 and 15. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both ye and also the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. But if ye will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your fathers. Look at verse 24 and 25, because Samuel essentially says the same thing again as he wraps up his, his message here. He says, Only fear the Lord. And serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider how great things He has done for you. But if you shall do wickedly, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king. Even then, when the rejection of God's kingship had happened in Israel, if they would obey going forward, God would bless them. And He would bless their king. But if they didn't, God tells them that if you don't and you turn away and you don't follow me, then the same discipline that your fathers had, it'll happen to you too. It was important for Israel to understand this, that, that failure did not mean God was finished with them. They could still serve God if they would turn and obey. In fact, if you think about Samuel's review of their history, shouldn't, shouldn't that have been something they understood? Their history was filled with failures. That's what Israel's history is. But it's also filled with forgiveness. It's also filled with God delivering time and time again. And so even though it was an indictment, their history was an indictment on them, it's also hope because they see the faithfulness of God when they review their history. And every time, every deliverance that Samuel brought up, every time all of these deliverances were ultimately from God, even though he used men to accomplish those deliverances, like Moses and Aaron and the other men that, that Samuel brings up. And so now the people need to understand that God would do the same thing with their king if they'll obey and if them and the king would follow him. If they and their king would follow God, God will use that king like He used Moses and Aaron and other men. God would bless that king. God will be with that king. And He has proved that with Saul's first victory, right, in chapter 11. God would deliver through the man He chose, just as He did in the past, in spite of their rebellion, if they will go forward and serve now. God is so patient. And so merciful. So in verse 16 through 19, it was important for Samuel to remind the people to obey, even though their wickedness was great, and remind them and encourage them of that. But in verse 16 and 19, he's going to call upon the Lord to support his words in a mighty way, to demonstrate the seriousness of this with a sign. Look at verse 16 through 19. Now, therefore... Stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call unto the Lord, and He shall send thunder and rain, that ye may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which ye have done in the sight of the Lord in asking you a king. So Samuel called unto the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. 
And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God, that we die not. For we have added unto all our sins this evil, to ask us a king. The wheat harvest relates to maybe about right now. May or June, give or take. It was an extremely dry season in Israel. One author even says that having a severe thunderstorm right now, he says, quote, was incomprehensible to a Hebrew in time of harvest. Incomprehensible. This just did not happen, which is why it's such a powerful sign. Can you imagine what the Israelites are feeling after Samuel has reviewed their history? It's a very dry, cloudless day, perfect for harvesting wheat. And he tells them that your wickedness is so great, I'm going to call upon the Lord during the, the dry time of the wheat harvest, and He will cause it to thunder and rain to show how great your wickedness is. And then all of a sudden, a storm comes up and it rains because a prophet called upon God. Not only does it prove God's power, but it proves that God agrees with Samuel. When Samuel told them this is wicked, God agrees. God does exactly what Samuel asked him to do. And the sign affected the people so much that they're, in Arkansas language, they're scared to death. And they asked Samuel, please pray for us so that we don't die. We're sinners, but we've added to all that sin, this really bad sin in asking for a king. This great wickedness. And when the people are scared to death, look at verse 20 and 22. Samuel said unto the people, fear not. Aren't those some of the greatest words in the Bible? Fear not. Ye have done all this wickedness, yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And turn ye not aside, for then should ye go after vain things, which cannot profit nor deliver for their vain. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you His people. Fear not. People are, are shaken. They're scared to death. And the first thing Samuel says to them is, don't be afraid. But there's a reason he gives them of why they shouldn't be afraid. It wasn't, you know, an empty command. He tells them, yes, you, you've done this wickedness. But right now, don't turn aside. Serve the Lord with all your heart right now, going forward. Sometimes baseball coaches will tell young players not to turn one mistake into an even bigger mistake. Or don't, don't turn one error into multiple errors. Maybe you're playing shortstop and a ground ball is hit to you and you don't field it cleanly, and so the runner's going to make first base. That's one mistake. That's one error. But don't make a second mistake by, by getting in a hurry and rushing a throw to first base that, that's such a bad throw it goes past the first baseman and now the runner gets to second base. You've, you've made that mistake. Take a deep breath and do things right going forward. And that's kind of what Samuel's telling the Israelites here. You've made this great mistake, yes, but don't compound it. Don't make it worse by not turning to God and serving right now. 
Yes, you've done wrong, but starting right now, let's do right. Don't turn aside. Don't turn aside into these vain things. There's no one else that's worthy of Israel's love and service. Same is true in our lives. Any other so-called gods the Israelites served were nothing. Samuel says they're vain. That word there means empty. An empty, vain, false god cannot benefit you, can't deliver you. So why would you turn from the true, powerful, almighty God to, to something that's empty? Yes, you've sinned, but now serve. And then we get to verse 22, which is maybe the best, the best verse in the whole chapter. Here's why they shouldn't fear. For the Lord will not forsake His people, for they're so good. Is that what Samuel said? The Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake. That's got to be the most wonderful, encouraging truth the Israelites could have heard at that moment. The Lord's faithfulness is not dependent upon your worthiness, but rather upon His greatness. One author says that Israel was inextricably held in the iron grip of God's love. When they failed, God didn't forsake them. Even then, God didn't forsake them. In verse 23, Samuel would keep praying for him. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Samuel actually felt that not praying for his people would have been a sin. Think about that for a minute. Oh, I forgot to pray for him today. Oh, well, I'll get it tomorrow. He viewed that as a sin in his life if he stopped praying for those people. What does the New Testament tell us about praying for one another? Commands us to do it continually. Be praying for one another. And if we don't do that, it's a sin. Let's be an assembly that always prays for one another. Pray for one another. Pray for me as your pastor. Don't ever doubt the power and the importance of praying for one another. So yeah, they're just a bunch of sinners though. Of course. Samuel's telling Israel who just rejected the kingship of God for the kingdom of Saul, I'm not going to stop praying for you because that would be a sin. But I'll continue to teach you the good and the right things. Okay, You can still learn even after you failed. There are a lot of great lessons here, a lot of great applications and encouragements that we can draw. You know, the value of a good name, realizing God's the source of our victories, the importance of praying for one another. But the main lesson that we need to take away from this chapter is that our failures do not rule out hope because of the greatness of God. Our failures don't rule out hope because of the greatness of God. Israel has failed God time and time again, but God never failed them. When they failed miserably, God didn't forsake them. And it doesn't mean that he was pleased when they sinned. Okay? It doesn't mean he, he looked the other way or anything like that. He brought discipline, but he's patient. 
God doesn't just throw His children away when they fail. He brings discipline in order to correct. Israel failed so often, and yet God kept delivering them. We might have thought, okay, now they've asked for a king. They've rejected the kingship of God. That'll be the last straw. No. Even that wasn't. He says, if you'll obey me now, I'll bless you and your king. What an amazing God we serve. He never forsakes His children. The same is true in my life and in your life. None of us are perfect servants, but we serve a perfect God. There may have been times in your life where you failed. I should probably reword that. There are times in your life when you have failed. There are times in our lives where we've been unfaithful, where we've made wicked mistakes, but if we're still here... You've got the opportunity to serve God now. Don't let your past failures and mistakes snowball and become bigger. But like Israel did that day under Samuel's leadership, renew your commitment to God today. Right now, even when you fall, you still have the opportunity to get up and finish the race just like Derek Redmond did. Because no matter how great your falls have been, if you're turned to God, He'll be right there for you. If Derek Redmond's dad loved him enough to help him cross the finish line, how much do you think your Heavenly Father loves you and wants you to finish the race? Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. If you're a child of God, that's true in your life. He'll never leave you. You may have failed him miserably time and time again, but he's never failed you. He's never forsaken you. So serve him now. Renew that commitment to God today. And if if that doesn't describe you, if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you haven't served God, you need to know that Jesus Christ is the only one who can deliver you from sin and from death and from hell. Just like God sent Moses and Aaron and those other men to deliver Israel when they were oppressed, He sent Jesus Christ to deliver you from sin for His great name's sake. Not because you were worthy of it, but for His glory and for His honor. If you're serving the Lord, let's all pray for the Lord's grace to finish our race like Samuel did, where we can look back unashamed with integrity, with character, But we need God's help to do that. Let's stand. Bow for a word of prayer as we prepare for an invitation. Father, we thank you so much for your word. and We pray that it will find lodging in our hearts and that we will apply it to our lives. Thank you for your patience when we sin. We thank you that, that you're a good and merciful and loving God. Help us to never forget that and never take that for granted, Lord. Thank you so much for Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. We ask everything in his name. Amen.